1980. The halls of Humber College were beginning to quiet as students scattered for their long-awaited Christmas break. Kevin McDonald, a first-year theater student, went unnoticed as he sat cross-legged by himself on the cold marmolean floor. He was chubby, wore glasses. His fingers were enveloped into a mass of black curly hair as he cradled his head in his hands. Kevin had just received news that he wouldn't be returning to college for the winter semester. He'd been kicked out just one semester into a three-year theater program. Turns out, he wasn't Humber material. It was just the latest setback for the 19-year-old. Earlier in the year, Kevin's mom and dad, Sheila and Hammy, split up. Well, Sheila left Hammy. Hammy was an abusive alcoholic who sometimes moonlighted as a dental equipment salesman. From the Dave Shore Show. When I was 12, he came into my room one day and he said, How many girls called you today? Zero? Right, right. Hey, how many called you yesterday? Zero? Good, good. Hey, you know what zero times zero equals, don't you? Good night, my little mathematician. When it was time for Sheila, Kevin, and his little sister Sandra to leave Hammy, they did so in slow motion. The family waited for their patriarch to pass out, and then they moved their belongings out of the house nearly item by item. Somewhere in this time, Kevin dropped out of high school. He had never been a motivated student, but since he was a kid, he wanted to be a writer and performer in the mold of Gene Wilder. Kevin found a home in the Humber College Theater program, a place to learn, a place to be himself, and even catch some much-needed Zs where possible. And now, here he was, just four months in, and he was already out. For Kevin, running afoul of the Dean did not result in as many laughs as the movies would lead you to believe. Mr. McDonald? Kevin lifted his head, looking six feet and two inches up to meet the gaze of one of his teachers, William B. Davis, TV's cigarette-smoking man. What are you doing here? I guess you didn't hear. I, I, I got kicked out of school. Bill Davis scratched the back of his head. He maybe did hear something about that. He maybe knew all about it. He took up a spot on the floor next to Kevin. Do you think I'm a one-legged actor, Mr. Davis? A what? Yeah, that's what the dean said. Said I was a one-legged actor. Don't know exactly what it means, but it feels bad. And of course it didn't feel great. Bill Davis felt bad for the kid. He'd always liked Kevin, and he told him so, and how he thought Kevin had a lot of talents the other students wished they had, and couldn't learn. He was funny, but Kevin worried that that's all anybody would see him as, the funny fat guy. Don't knock it. World needs funny fat guys. This got Kevin's brain turning. Bill Davis was right. There was John Belushi, John Candy, Lou Costello, and Hammy's favorite, Jackie Gleason. Maybe, if you worked hard, he could find a spot on that list. Maybe I messed up my chance to do any of that. That's when Bill Davis pulled out a pen and wrote a phone number on a scrap of paper. He handed it to Kevin. When you get home today, I want you to phone this number. They could be looking for a funny fat guy. It was the number for Second City Toronto, the famed improv theater that launched the careers of Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Dan Aykroyd, Dave Thomas, and Martin Short. It had incubated the talent that went on to create SCTV, the hippest thing in televised comedy since Monty Python's Flying Circus and Saturday Night Live. All of this flashed through Kevin's thoughts as he took the number from his teacher. He was down now, but maybe he wasn't out. From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North. It's a new podcast in which we deep dive into the history behind your favorite Canadian content. 
Welcome to season one. We're looking at one of the most important and enduring comedy troops of the last 50 years, The Kids in the Hall. We're going to explore the story behind the group and their groundbreaking show, their creativity, triumphs, and missteps, and how their iconoclastic approach to sketch comedy may have hurt them in the short term, but could be the key to their enduring appeal. This is the first in a five-part story, episode one, Origin Stories. Problems adrift and sail away on a sea of laughter aboard the Love Boat tonight at nine here on the Global Television Network. When you walk through an art museum, what happens? You see some interesting things, you see some not so interesting things, <laughs> and if you're like us at all, you're probably a little bit sleepy. Well, grab a cafecito and listen up. It's Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. We are both artists, so we look at art history through that perspective. We cover the artists you know and those that have been ignored for so many different reasons. We look at the context of the time, we compare it to today. We don't dumb anything down, but, and this is a big but, Hey-o. we like to have a good time okay nos gusta to goof around <laughs> all right we have hungry pantry bonds no, that no, might startle you it's a long story we, we feed them our materials art is just a visual language that is open for anyone to interpret so if this all sounds good to you join us on art slice a palatable serving of art history calgary alberta 1981 It was Saturday night at the Loose Moose. The smoke-filled theater was playing host to a rowdy crowd gathered to watch some improv comedy. The night's MC stood center stage, warming up the audience on a frigid winter night. I hope everyone had a chance to change your tires before the weekend. Slippery out there. You, sir, you change your tires? Theater sports was on the bill for the night. It's the comedy equivalent of gladiatorial battle. Improv troops go tete-a-tete in scene-for-scene combat. The audience decides who lives to see the next setup. Up first that night was a couple of rookie teams, the On Golden Puns, squaring off against Jerry's kids. The On Golden Puns won the coin toss, which meant that they got to make the challenge. We challenged Jerry's kids to reenact a famous scene from a movie in the time it takes Dale to unwrap and read a Bazooka Joe comic. And the challenge was made to Jerry's kids, otherwise known as Andrew Pierce and Bruce McCullough both new to improv. In fact, before stumbling into the loose moose just weeks earlier, Bruce was a journalism student at Mount Royal College in Calgary. He had also been weighing a possible career in punk music. But theater sports turned his head. Prior to all of this, he had been a rudderless kid from a broken family. With improv, he found for the first time fellow outsiders, a group of other cool nerds that mirrored his musical heroes. Under the very judgy eyes of the theater sports judges, each of whom was armed with a bicycle horn ready to sound off on any boring improv players, Bruce and his partner Andrew awaited their cue. Without a moment's thought, Bruce dove to the floor and began burrowing himself under the massive 150-pound faux Persian rug that covered the stage. He furiously worked to make any headway, 
but the sheer weight of the carpet made it hard going. As Bruce found himself pinned to the floor, it was crickets in the club. But standing in the wings, watching it all, was Mark McKinney, a tall, good-looking wasp. Mark was a member of the theater sports team known as The Audience. They took their name for the foolproof laugh that came when the MC would announce, Ladies and gentlemen, The Audience. Mark had grown up a foreign service brat, living all over the world. As a teenager, he landed at Memorial University in Newfoundland, where he met Norm Hiscock, future writer for Parks and Recreation and King of the Hill. In those early college days, Mark and Norm wrote comedy bits together for the campus radio station. Like Kevin, and eventually Bruce, Mark was not destined to finish college. He would later say in interviews that he flunked out of the University of Newfoundland, a fudging of the facts that could elicit a chuckle. Mark followed his pal Norm halfway across the country to Calgary. On this night, as Bruce labored under the massive rug, Mark watched on in admiration. The audience didn't get it, and the judges disapproved. Mark may have been the only one in the room that chuckled at Bruce's choice. He respected it as a choice. With some help, Bruce pulled himself out from under the rug and took his spot next to his improv partner. He fixed his hair as he awaited their score. Then, after a quick deliberation, it was two zeros and a two from the judges. It was added to the scoreboard and Jerry's kids slunk off the stage. As Bruce crossed paths with Mark, McKinney offered a word of consolation. Oh, I liked it. Bruce looked up at his elder classman. Mark had been doing improv a whole seven months longer than him, and he was the best actor in his troupe, a Peter Sellers-level mimic in mind. A smile broke across Bruce McCullough's boyish face. A while had passed since Bill Davis had handed Kevin the number for Second City. After weeks of inaction, he finally dug the scrap of paper out from a dirty pair of jeans and summoned the courage to dial the number. His stomach was doing backflips as it rang on the other side. What if John Candy was there, Kevin thought. What if he picks up the phone? Would he recognize a fellow fat guy on the other end of the line? Second City, Toronto. At first, Kevin was at a loss for words. What was he supposed to say? Can I be in your show? Do you have a place for a college flunky? He finally figured out something to say. I'm, um, I'm interested in improv. It wasn't much, but it was a start. He had put the ball in their court at the very least. Yes. The person on the other end of the line was inviting. He needed to elaborate. How do I do it? It's $60 for six weeks of classes. That's where everybody starts. That was all Kevin needed to hear. After that, you might be invited to audition for the touring company or maybe at a theater in London. Then, some are invited to audition for the main stage. Kevin hung up the phone. Maybe his life wasn't going to shit. How could it be? The only thing that stood between him and show business was $60. Canadian history is fascinating. I truly believe that. And that's why on Canadian History X and my other podcast, From John to Justin, I look at all aspects of Canadian history. On Canadian History X, I look at the various people from the most simple farmer all the way up to the craziest outlaw and beyond. I look at the stories of small towns and the events that made Canada what it is today. But I also look at the dark parts. I look at Canada's slavery history, how we've treated the indigenous, and much more. With Canadian History X, I try and show the good and the bad of Canadian history. 
Over on from John to Justin, I look at every Prime Minister in Canadian history, I look at every election in Canadian history, and I look at every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister. Beyond that, I'm going to be looking at every Premier of every province and really delving into the leaders who shaped Canada from the earliest moments all the way up to today. That's Canadian History X and From John to Justin, available on all podcast platforms. Now, back to our program. Spring 1981, 110 Lombard Street, Toronto. There was a heightened energy in Second City's old firehouse theater. A new student joined that night's improv workshop, and his reputation preceded him. Dave Foley, a good-looking kid from the Toronto suburb of Etobicoke, was known as a very funny guy. This was not his first improv course. He had just done one at the Skills Exchange, and he even tested his stand-up chops at Yuck Yuck's open mic. Alan Gutman, the theater's director, was the instructor that night. Alan grabbed a seat within the closed circle of folding chairs. Dave! He singled out the newcomer. Why don't you get up in the middle of the circle and... uh... Alan searched the room before he landed on Kevin. Why don't you get up? You two start us off with the mirror exercise. The two lads met in the center of the circle. They stood face to face, uncomfortably close. The idea of the mirror game is for two players to synchronize their movements so precisely, so naturally, that it's imperceptible who is initiating each movement. It's a way to hone one's improv instincts, acting and reacting without thinking. Dave raised his hand and Kevin followed suit. He raised another and they began doing a circular wax on, wax off motion. Dave's eyes began to drift, wandering down from the top of Kevin's voluminous black afro and landing on his eyes. <laughs> Dave, come on, no laughing. Sorry. Dave recentered himself. He then again met eyes with Kevin, who was now giving him a face. Dave tried to hold it together, but broke again. They tried, but it was a lost cause. As Dave pulled himself together, Kevin broke. Soon they just began rehashing bits from the Marx Brothers' duck soup. Finally, Gutman cut them off. Okay, okay, let's put us all out of our misery. Toronto, 1982. Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald burst out of the doors of the Harborfront Centre where they had just seen their first theatre sports event. Keith Johnstone's creation had migrated east finding its home just a 20-minute walk from Second City's old fire hall. It had become a scene among the city's improv community. For Kevin, theater sports was a revelation. He and Dave had just completed a six-week cycle of classes at Second City, but they were already feeling a bit square peggish. Second City had rules. The three big don't-dos. Don't talk about the past or future. Don't ask questions. And never say no. Sure, the rules were a foundation on which to build not always good improv, but at least watchable improv. But to Kevin and Dave, rules belonged in school, not in comedy. Theater sports had its own ideas and culture surrounding improv, but it embodied the true on-the-spot invention and lunacy that appealed to them. What Kevin and Dave just saw was something nobody had ever seen before, and nobody but those in the audience that night would ever see again. Kevin was convinced. I'm dropping Second City. He could see the writing on the wall. The track he was on was laid out before him from that first phone call. First classes, then maybe the touring show where he would be tasked with rehashing Second City classics that had been originated by the likes of Mike Nichols and Alan Arkin. Not that those guys weren't heroes of his, but it was 1982. What about Candy and Belushi, Dave asked him. But Kevin was convinced. He announced to Dave 
his friend of just a few weeks, that he was starting his own theater sports team with his friend Luke Kazmiri. He said it like it was already a done deal, and he invited Dave to join. Fully agreed. Later, Kevin rushed home and phoned Luke and informed his friend that they were now a theater sports team. Kevin McDonald, Dave Foley, along with their Second City Workshop friends Luke Casimiri and Scott Stewart first took to the theater sports stage under the name Uncle Vanya and the Three Sisters. They would change their name a few times until a producer at the local global TV affiliate suggested the kids in the hall as a moniker. They jumped at the name. It was a term that was invoked by Sid Caesar to refer to the young joke writers on his popular series, Your Show of Shows. Comedy nerds like Kevin and Dave were only too happy to swap out this suggestion in place of their current name, the Mixed Nuts. The newly formed Kids in the Hall soon earned a reputation in the theater sports community for skirting the rules, or at least the spirit of play. They created mock games meant to subvert the competitive aspect of the theater sports premise. Games like the best scene until Kevin gets an asthma attack during which Kevin would run around the space until he began to wheeze. Come on, this is not fair. They can't make games that put someone's life in danger. Dave and Kevin protested. It's my life! The jury held up a triple zero score for the team. Once again, the kids found themselves as outsiders from their community. But it was a position that was starting to feel comfortable for them. And audiences didn't seem to take notice. Think how boring television would be if all it ever showed us was people just like ourselves. It would be like watching a mirror all day. But luckily, television shows us lots of people that are just like ourselves. They talk differently. Hi, my name is Susie. Do you want to play house? They act differently. (laughs) The more you get to know what's special about other people, the more you'll appreciate what's special about yourself. Hey, there's a smart way to watch TV. Spring, 1983. It was a packed house at the Loose Moose. Bruce McCullough was standing center stage wearing nothing but socks on his feet. It was a big night. The audience was putting on its farewell show. By this point, Bruce had joined Mark McKinney, Norm Hiscock, Gary Campbell, and the others as a full-fledged member of the troupe. Months earlier, feeling that they had outgrown theater sports, the audience began performing a late-night comedy show where they presented original sketches, and they were a hit. Despite sometimes facing temperatures of 20 degrees below zero, Calgary comedy fans would line up every Saturday night outside the Loose Moose Simplex, a new 600-seat venue opened by Keith Johnstone. After months of packed shows, the troupe had decided it was time to pull up stakes and try replicating their success in Toronto. After that night's show, the audience was sitting in a bar toasting to their sold-out swan song. They were sitting with some other theater sports guys when one from Toronto, Brian Nazimog, asked Mark, you know, your sketches, they remind me of these guys back in Toronto. You know, you should look them up. They're, they're called the Kids in the Hall. Mark took note of the name. How alike could their sketches be? And were the so-called Kids in the Hall selling out theaters in the big smoke? Hi. 
1983. The Poor Alex is a 100-seat venue for experimental theatre and comedy. Its name is a self-deprecating play on the Royal Alexander Theatre, the palatial 1,200-seat home for Toronto's legitimate theatrical productions. Over the years, the Royal Alex had played host to the likes of Fred Astaire, Edith Piaf, and Olivia de Havilland. Whereas the Poor Alex can lay claim to both Casey and Finnegan. On this night, it's presenting a double bill of sketch comedy. Excuse me. Sorry. Excuse me. Sorry. Excuse me. Sorry. Scott Thompson was a 23-year-old theater student at nearby York University. He shuffled across a row of patrons to an open seat next to his friend Darlene Harrison. Nice of you to show. Scott and Darlene, along with their friends Karen Ballard and Tim Sims, had recently formed an improv troupe called The Love Cats. Darlene invited Scott to the poor Alex to scope out a couple new rising stars in Toronto's growing improv scene. The audience, a troupe that had made its bones in Calgary before recently relocating east. And the hometown kids in the hall. Scott fidgeted impatiently in his seat, waiting for the show to start. It was at that moment that his fingers grazed something stuck to the bottom of his chair. Ew, I touched something. Scott plunged his head down between his knees. And there, taped to the underside of his seat, was a single chocolate-dipped donut. Darlene, check under your seat. Darlene grimaced, afraid of what she would find. Reach under your seat. She reluctantly complied, and after a second or two, produced another chocolate-dipped donut. Scott then began checking under the seats next to him, and the ones beyond that. Oh my god, there's a donut under all of them. The theater was only two-thirds full. Scott skulked about collecting donuts from underneath each empty chair. As the house lights began to dim, he had a baker's dozen. But Scott didn't have yet a step two to his plan. And as the show started, he soon forgot about the donuts, as he found himself absorbed in what was happening on stage. The audience and the kids took command of the room. They moved in and out of each other's sketches. These guys were fucking hilarious, Scott thought. They're so weird and polished. How did they get to be this good? He turned to Darlene. I'm going to be in that troupe one day. You don't even know them. Scott shook his head. It was no matter. A burning bush had just spoken to him. He was going to be up there on that stage performing with those guys. And then another idea hit him. He was going to announce himself right there and then. Scott grabbed one of the donuts from his collection and hurled it at a performer. It was a direct hit to the chest. Before they could even stop the show to respond, Scott fired two more from the middle row. That's when Bruce barked. Hey, asshole. Scott continued to hurl donut after donut as the guys on stage blocked and dodged the flying pastries. Then, after a moment, the barrage came to a stop. Bruce McCullough squinted in the face of the hot stage lights, trying to make out his assailant. Are you done, asshole? Yep, Scott said. I'm all out of donuts. Thank you. After a moment, the cast resumed their scene. Scott leaned over and whispered into Darlene's ear. You watch. By the end of the year, I'll be up there with them. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It's co-produced with Sonia Jabidi, with additional voices provided by Matt Barnett. This was episode one, Origin Stories. Come back for episode two, Fast Times of the Rivoli. If you like us, rate us, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. 
You can find us on Twitter at Knockabout Media and on Instagram at Once in Hollywood North. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can find more Canadian media ephemera on their YouTube channel and Instagram. If you want anything more by me, you can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. If you want to watch The Kids in the Hall, their entire CBC series is available on Amazon Prime. Thanks for listening, and until next time. I'm cutting your head. I'm cutting your head. Enough about the media original. All done.